Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Veritas. Um, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and make your way to the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. If you grabbed one of those black hardback ones on your way in, it's on page 885. And uh, if you grab one of those Bibles, keep that. It's our gift to you uh, as a church. Now, it's almost that time of year to do your patriotic duty as an American and rewatch this movie, um, but one of my favorite scenes in the movie The Sandlot uh, is when Benny knocks the cover off of the baseball and they don't have money to get a new one, and so they're not going to be able to play anymore. And so uh, Smalls runs back to his dad's house and goes into his dad's office and grabs a baseball that his dad had been given uh, that had been signed by Babe Ruth for them to play with. And so he brings this ball back for them to play with, and they're playing for a little while, and Smalls ends up hitting a home run. He hits this ball uh, over the fence into the beast yard, which means they're not going to be able to play anymore. And so everybody else is celebrating because he's hit his first home run, and this is a big deal, but he's freaking out, and he says, you guys don't understand. We have to get that ball back. Someone signed it and gave it to my dad. And so they finally ask, who gave it to him? And he says, some lady gave it to him. She even signed her name on it, too. Some lady named Ruth, Baby Ruth. And, and of course, they all freak out and they're like, Babe Ruth? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you guys keep talking about her. Who is she? And they say the Sultan of Swat, the, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Cloud, the Colossus of Cloud, the Great Bambino. And, and he realizes in that moment, he says, oh my gosh, you mean that's the same guy? Well, we're in the last week of our series on the attributes of God, and this morning we're talking about and, and seeking to answer the question of how can God be both righteous and loving, just and loving. And, and just like Smalls was shocked at the realization that all of these things could be true about the same person, that Babe Ruth at the same time could be the Sultan of Swat and the King of Crash and the Colossus of Clout and the Great Bambino, uh, when, when, in the same way, when we talk about a God of justice and a God of love, we're, we're actually talking about the same God, that God is all of these things in himself, and that's really good news for us. And so to look at that together this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, where Paul addresses uh, and answers this question for us. And so I'll read this for us, uh, we'll pray for God's help, and we'll talk through this. Starting in verse 21 of Romans 3, the Word of God to us speaks to us like this. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sin. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, uh, we come to you now uh, asking that you would just give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe the good news of the gospel as it's presented to us here in this passage. Help us to see that you are just 
you are righteous, you are loving, uh, that that's not, those attributes aren't in tension for you, uh, they're not in contradiction for you. This is just who you are in yourself, and that's incredibly good news for us. God, help us to see that. I pray that you would stir our hearts fresh once again. We would be freshly amazed at your goodness and your grace towards us in the gospel. God, please help us to see we need your help. Do that even now. I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, we are seeking to answer this question of how can God be both just and loving, righteous uh, and loving. We've talked a little bit in the past three weeks about how God is both righteous and loving, but we want to talk this morning about how he can be and why uh, that's good news for us. And again, this is the question that Paul is addressing and answering here in Romans chapter 3. Notice verse 21 again. He says, Now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The, the righteousness of God here means the way that God is righteous in himself, the way that he's just and holy and pure and always does what is right and is unstained from sin. But it doesn't just mean that, and it, it actually doesn't even primarily mean that here. It primarily means the way that God displays his righteousness by making a way for us to be right with himself. Notice verse 22, Paul says, this is the righteousness of God through faith for all who believe in Jesus. And so this is the way that God makes us right with himself, the way he displays his righteousness by doing that, that we receive as a gift through faith and belief in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And, and here's the reason we all need this, verse 23, because there's no distinction. All of us in here are sinners who have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners who have turned away from God, and that therefore earns God's judgment. God, if He's going to be just, uh, He's going to have to judge sin, and we are sinners who have earned His judgment. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and this question of how can God be both righteous and loving is really one of the central questions of the Bible's story. Uh, this question of how can God have relationship with us after we've sinned? How can God uphold his justice and make a way for sinners to be right with him and reconciled back to him? How can God, who is pure and holy and unstained from sin, uh, have relationship with people like us who are not holy, who are not pure, who are not unstained from sin? Because I'm sure if you've read your Bible, especially the Old Testament, uh, you know it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nadab and Abihu are put to death just for touching the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence and holiness dwelt in a way that they weren't supposed to. Uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in all of his glory, he does not say, oh man, this is such a cool sight. I've got to make sure to take a picture of this. He says, oh no, I'm going to die. I'm unclean. I live among a people who are unclean, and my eyes have seen the King. This is it for me. I am going to die. The Bible just asserts God's justice and holiness as a fact. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord, it says the angels around God's throne are proclaiming that God is holy, 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 that this is who He is. God is just. God is holy. God is pure. God is unstained from sin. God is light, and there's no darkness in Him at all. God does what is right 
Because He is right. Because He is righteous. And so if God is going to be just, He's going to have to do something about sin. He's going to have to judge our sin. He's going to have to judge us for that sin. But as we've seen, in in many ways, the story of the Bible is that when we run, God pursues. That God longs to make a way for us to be right with Him and reconciled back uh, to Himself. And so we have what almost looks like this tension of of how God is going to do so. Uh, You see this in the story in the book of Exodus when Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and the people are down below uh, breaking them by making a golden calf and worshiping it. Uh, After this, God judges the people and Moses pleads with God and says, God, please continue to go with us. Don't abandon us, which God promises to do. And then Moses asks God to show him his glory, which God also promises to do. And then listen to Exodus 34, verses 5-7, through when God reveals his glory to Moses. Listen to what it says. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is who God is. God is a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But notice again the end of verse 7, who will by no means clear the guilty, who will not let the guilty go unpunished, who will not sweep sin under the rug. And you see this in this story of the golden calf. God uh, forgives his people and he continues to go with them, but Before that, he judges them. 3,000 people are put to death, and then on top of that, God sends a plague upon the Israelites, and more people die from that plague because God will by no means clear the guilty. And so again, it almost looks like there's this tension between God's justice and God's love, but it also helps us understand what it means when we say that God is love, that God is a loving God. Because when we talk about what it means for God to be love, we've got to take our cues for that from God's Word and not from the world. Because for us today, love is just affirmation of somebody's choices and desires and how they see themselves, or it's just kind of warm, fuzzy feelings towards them. To love someone today is to affirm who they say they are, to celebrate the desires that they have and the choices that they have made with their lives. And before you think I'm just talking about somebody else and you take yourself out of this, I'm not just talking about some of the extremes of gender ideology. I'm saying all of us do this. That, that all of us are guilty of this. And I'm not trying to be cynical about this. I'm just trying to tell you the truth because this is the water that we swim in. This is the air that we breathe. All of us are being discipled by our culture to think that happiness and meaning is found in constructing your own unique identity. And so we are all the main character of our lives. We're the hero of the stories that we are telling ourselves. 
And so we've got to think of ways to mark ourselves out and give us a sense of meaning and purpose and significance as we try to live out our lives. And so we do that by trying to construct this identity that, that we feel like will give us significance. And so we treat other people like bit players in our story who will help us shape and affirm and curate and craft that identity. I mean, this is how we want others to love us. We want them to affirm and celebrate what we feel like is important about us. And this is how we love others. We love others for how they benefit us, for what they can do for us, how they make us laugh, or how they're enjoyable to be around. Look, I'm not saying that, you know, we never do good things for other people or we don't serve other people. I'm just saying at some level, all of us are doing this. All of us are looking to curate and craft an identity and a sense of meaning in this world. And so if we start doing something and people affirm and celebrate that, we lean into that and we start to see ourselves more as this is who I am. If we start doing something and people reject that, we move away from that and we try something else. This is why, for example, you'll see a lot of guys who maybe were pretty good at their sport in high school and were viewed as respectable and successful for that. Maybe they were a big man on campus and they were a football star or they were a basketball star, but they're not good enough to play in college or professionally. And uh, just being passionate about watching sports is not going to make people look at you like you're successful. Uh, and so their passion shifts towards uh, getting a good job and, and getting a high-paying job that's respectable, that gives you the raises and the promotions and the status where you can have the house and the car and all the status symbols that show other people that you're still a success. I mean, it's still, I want other people to look at me as a success. That's what will make me happy. The way you get there just shifts and changes throughout your life. And again, I'm saying that all of us in some measure are doing this, are looking for other people to affirm our choices and our desires and how we see ourselves. But love can't just be blanket affirmation of everyone's choices and desires because we are sinners. Like what happens when people desire things that we as a society think are a little bit out of bounds that you, you shouldn't be able to give yourself over to? Somebody identifies as a pedophile, we don't want to celebrate and encourage that identity. If somebody identifies as a murderer, we, we don't say, hey, that's awesome, that's great, you're great, you keep doing you. No, we don't, we want to push back against those things, but even when it doesn't go to those extremes, we don't actually want God's love to just be a blanket affirmation of our desires and the choices and decisions we've already made. Because what if God letting you pursue your chosen identity isn't actually what's best for you? What if you working 70 hours a week to gain respect and status for yourself and neglecting your family isn't actually best for you and will shrivel your soul and kill you, and God doesn't want to celebrate that and affirm that in your life? What if you curating the, per the identity of being the perfect mom on Instagram is getting you some respect and affirmation but causing your kids to feel like they come in second place to your phone because they do, and God doesn't want to celebrate and affirm that in your life either. What if you buying one more thing to fill up this aching sense of kind of aimlessness and boredom and purposelessness that you feel and putting yourself further into debt is actually not what's best for you, and God doesn't want to affirm that in your life either. You see, the good news is that... Uh, God's love is not like that. 
God's love is a relentless desire for our good, for what is best for us, for what's going to lead to our flourishing, not just a blanket affirmation of our desires. And so that means that because God's love is a desire for our good and an active desire where God acts for our good on our behalf and He does what is best for us, that means that a lot of times God's not going to give us what we want and He's not going to give us what we might think is best for us. Just like as a parent, you would not give your kids ice cream for every meal even if they felt like that's what they really wanted. In the same way, God loves us, so He's not going to give us over to our desires. He's going to do what is best for us. You see, and this is good news, because love without justice, without a desire for what is right and what is best and what leads to flourishing, ultimately that just dissolves into sentimentality and just kind of warm, fuzzy feelings towards each other, which would then just descend us into chaos because then whoever has the most power gets to make the rules about what's acceptable and what is not. Love has to be more than just sentimentality if it's actually going to be love. God has to be more than just a cosmic grandpa up in the sky kind of smiling and laughing down at our decisions and saying, well, you know, at least they had some fun while they were doing it. You see, some people will say, you know, why can't God just forgive everybody if God is a God of love? But to, to say that not only misunderstands God's love, it also misunderstands the nature of forgiveness because real forgiveness always comes with a cost. Somebody has to pay for it even if the person who's being forgiven doesn't pay for it. And so, for example, if somebody uh, slanders you and they gossip about you and they ruin your reputation and you forgive them for that, then you have to bear the relational cost for that. Like you don't get to go around and every time somebody says something nice about them, say, yeah, yeah, she's great and all, but, but let's just remember, guys, she's a huge liar. No, you, you don't get to do that. You just have to bear the cost of uh, not bringing it up every time she comes up in conversation, of not holding it against her, of not stewing on it and letting it grow into bitterness in your heart uh, and holding her at arm's length relationally if you're actually going to forgive her. Forgiveness always comes with a cost. Somebody has to pay for it. This is why God institutes the sacrificial system in the Old Testament to give us this really vivid illustration of the reality that forgiveness always comes with a cost. And the system God sets up in the Old Testament is life for life. And so if you sinned, you could bring bulls and goats to the temple and, and the priest would offer those bulls and goats as a sacrifice for your sin in your place. Like, its blood would be shed instead of yours. It would die so that you could live. It would pay for your sins with its death so that you could be forgiven. But what we see as we read the Old Testament story is that these sacrifices weren't actually paying for sins because the people had to keep coming back and doing them over and over, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Now, these sacrifices were kind of like a credit card. You know, say uh, that you're feeling real bougie and uh, you have got the desire in your heart to build an outdoor living room uh, to enjoy at your house this summer. And uh, you've got good credit and a credit card that has a $15,000 limit on it. And so uh, you go to Walmart and you buy yourself an 85-inch TV that costs $3,500. And you can't have a TV that nice without a sound bar. And so you buy the nicest sound bar that they have that costs another $1,000. 
uh, and you take that to the checkout and you pay for that with your credit card. And so you take that back to the house and then you head over to Target to get some outdoor furniture because people got to have somewhere to sit uh, while they watch this big TV that you bought. And so you get the outdoor furniture that also comes with a fire pit uh, and that because you want to roast some s'mores and that costs you uh, $3,000 and you pay for that with a credit card. And so you load that up in the truck, you take that back to the house, then you head over to Lowe's uh, to buy a gazebo uh, to protect that nice new TV that you bought. And you've got to buy one that has like, basically it's like an outer room to the back of your house and it's got a roof that open and closes uh, so that you can let the smoke out from your fire pit while you're roasting your s'mores. Uh, and that costs you $6,000. And so you take that home, you pay for that with a credit card, you uh, start to set that up and you realize, well, I'm also going to need a brick wall mount to mount this 85-inch TV uh, to the back of my house. And, and so you order that off of Amazon and that costs you another $100 and you pay for that with your credit card. Now, if you did all that, you, you got close, but you stayed under your $15,000 limit. And so all of those stores are going to let you purchase those items and take those home. Your card's not going to decline, and you're going to get to go home and enjoy your nice outdoor living room for a few weeks. But after a few weeks, when the credit card bill comes due, if you don't have the almost $14,000 that you spent on all of those things to pay the credit card company, if you don't have that money somewhere else, uh, you're going to be in huge trouble because paying with a credit card was a real purchase, but it was not a real payment. It did not actually pay the cost for those items. It just pushed that cost further down the road until it came due for you to pay for it. This is why Romans is saying that the way God makes us right with Himself is revealed apart from the law. He, the book of Hebrews says these Old Testament sacrifices, they cleanse the body so that, that we wouldn't live in a perpetual state of uncleanness, but they couldn't cleanse the conscience. They couldn't actually pay for our sins and make us right with God. These were like a credit card. It was a purchase, but it was not a payment, which means the payment for our sins is still due. We've racked up a massive debt against God with our sins, and somebody has to pay for that. God is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Someone has to pay the cost. So here's what God did. Uh, think about when somebody writes a story. Uh, what do they do? An author is going to write all these different characters into his story or her story uh, that they're writing. Now, what are those characters going to know about the author who has written them? Only what the author chooses to reveal about himself or herself, right? Right? Nobody, none of the hobbits in Middle-earth know anything about Tolkien. None of the Pevensies in Narnia know anything about C.S. Lewis. And no one at Hogwarts knows anything about who J.K. Rowling is. Uh, that's the way that most stories work, but that's not the way that God has written His story. See, God has authored us. He has written us into His story, and He hasn't left us in the dark about who He is. He's revealed Himself, and He's told us about who He is as our author, but we rejected God's authorship over our lives. We said, I don't like the way you've made me. I don't like the story you've written. I'm going to make myself and I'm going to write my own story because I can do this better than you. And that deserves judgment because we've rebelled against the God who made us. It would be entirely just for God to just erase us and start over with somebody new. 
It would be entirely righteous for God to hand us over to suffer the penalties and the punishments of judgment that we deserve for our sin. But God loves us too much to just leave us to ourselves. He loves us too much to just let us destroy ourselves. And so here's what God did. In the fullness of time, God did not just write some details here and there about himself. He actually wrote himself into our story. In Jesus, God has written himself into our story. Jesus has come. The author has become the main character. And Jesus has come to live the perfect human life that we have not lived. And then he went to the cross to fix the problem that we had made. The judge who has come to take his own judgment. And he comes and he bears the judgment of God for our sin on himself in our place to pay for it completely. He dies on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, to pay for our sin so that we would not have to. This is what Romans means when it says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies and fulfills judgment. Because Jesus has come as the judge to take His own judgment for our sin and has propitiated the justice of God we can, Romans is saying, we can now be justified. We can be counted righteous before God. We can be declared in the right before God, even though we are sinners. This is what God has done, which is why, to borrow a phrase, the cross does not resolve God's love and justice like their intention. The cross reveals them. This is why verses 25 and 26 say, the cross shows God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over sins in the Old Testament because the cross was going to pay for him. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he can at the same time uphold his justice, not sweep sin under the rug, pay for it and deal with it completely. And at the same time, he can justify us. He can count us righteous with himself. He can make us right with him and reconcile us back to him. He can be the just and the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Jesus. You see, the cross reveals what makes God different from every other so-called God. Grace. Notice that phrase tucked away in verse 24. We're justified by his grace as a gift. Grace is what makes God different. Because every other religion says that you have to earn your salvation. If you do good enough, if you do enough to reform and clean up your life, if you do enough religious activity, then maybe that God will be favorable to you. Every other religion works on a barter system. I give God my good works and my religious devotion, and hopefully that's enough to appease Him. Hopefully that's enough to propitiate him and get on his good side. And and then hopefully in return, he'll show me blessing and salvation. That's the polar opposite of the gospel. Only in the gospel do we actually get grace. A real grace that isn't a sentimentality, but is a real, I've seen everything you've ever done, and I've done something about it. This is grace And mercy, grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And we get grace and mercy because on the cross, Jesus took what we deserve so that forever we could get what He deserved. He made His own propitiation. He satisfied His own 
judgment. He paid the price for our sins. And because He has, we now have redemption as a gift. We've been bought back for God. We've been united to Jesus. And we've been given His righteousness as a free gift. We've been justified. Now, here are a few things that means for us. One, this passage is showing us, and the cross reveals to us, that wrath is not an attribute of God. God is love. God is just. God is holy. God is pure. God is spirit. God is light. God is not wrath. Remember, God is simple. And so if, God, if, if, attribu- if wrath was one of God's attributes, then we would have to say that He is wrath in His essence and nature and character. Not just that He has wrath, but that wrath is who He is. And if God is wrath in His essence, then he would have, He'd have to be angry all the time. And who is there for God to be angry at before He created the world? If wrath was one of God's attributes, He would have had to have been angry at Himself before He created the world. But wrath is not an attribute of God. I love the way that J.I. Packer puts it. He says wrath is God's settled opposition to sin. God's wrath is a metaphorical way to describe the way that sinners who reject Him experience His justice. God's wrath is a, it's a metaphorical way to describe His action of judging sinners, which looks a little bit like our human experiences of wrath and anger, but God doesn't get provoked. He doesn't fly off the handle. He, he doesn't have wrath in the way that we do. He has a settled opposition to sin because He is just. And so when we're talking about God's wrath, we're talking about His action of judging sinners. But God is not wrath. Wrath is not an attribute of God. Think about when when Paul here talks about that, that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. Think of that word in contrast to the way that this was used with pagan gods and pagan sacrifices. So with all the pagan gods, you would have to offer them sacrifices and offerings as a means to hopefully propitiate them, to calm down their wrath and anger and appease them and hopefully get on their good side. But that's not the case with God because who's the one making propitiation here? Not us. He is. He put Himself forward as a propitiation by His blood. He satisfied His judgment on Himself. And so when when the Bible uses The word propitiation, it is describing the way that God has satisfied and upheld and fulfilled His judgment for sin on Himself at the cross, which means if you're trusting in Jesus, there's none left for you. There's no judgment hanging over your head and God is not mad at you. Since so many of us walk around with this sort of just low-grade anxiety, that God is actually mad at us. That God is just a little bit disappointed in us. That God is a little bit frustrated with us. That He wants to keep us at arm's length. But yeah, of course God puts up with us and He loves us because He kind of has to, but He doesn't actually like us. And if you are in Jesus, the judgment for your sin has been paid for in full and there's none left for you. God is not mad at you. He's not angry with you. He has no wrath towards you. He satisfied that on Himself at the cross. He paid the price. He 
loves you and you can know that He loves you because His love led Him to the cross to be the propitiation and to be the sacrifice that would take judgment for you so that He could save you. You didn't make Him do that. He is totally free. He chose to do that for you. The cross shows you God is not mad at you. And second, the cross revealing God's righteousness and love, it also shows us that the gospel really does change everything. That you cannot exhaust God's grace. That it is higher, it is deeper, it is longer, it is wider than you could even imagine. That it is more than enough to sustain your meditating on and contemplating God for the rest of your day. This is why every week in this series, I've tried to lead you back to seeing that the way we see God's attributes most clearly revealed and displayed is in Jesus, is in the gospel. God is unchanging, which means His promises towards us are not going to change. God can't be overcome by anyone, which means His purposes to save us will never be thwarted. God is simple, and He opens up the fullness of who He is to us. God's not dependent on us, so He just freely creates us and saves us to lavish His love on us. God gives us His gracious presence in the Gospel so that we might actually know Him. And and one of the easiest ways to grow in the Christian life is just by staying freshly amazed at God's grace in your life. Freshly amazed at the reality that because God in the person of Jesus has taken what you deserve for all of eternity, you and I who are in Jesus, we now get what He deserves. We get blessing and life and salvation because of the work of Jesus. That you never again have to fear judgment or death, that you never have to go another day without God as your Father, that the God we've talked about over the past month, who is so big and so holy and so powerful and so transcendent, that that God really does care about you. That He really does desire a relationship with you and that He really has moved in these ways to save you and open up that relationship to you. So I just want to encourage you and step into this. Make meditating and contemplating on the goodness of God in the gospel. Make that the non-negotiable of your day. This will change you more than any sort of behavior or practice you could give yourself over to because seeing the grace of God in the gospel, it goes deeper than the level of your behaviors. It actually gets into your heart and starts to rewire even what you desire and what you want so that more and more you desire Him. And so make this the non-negotiable of your day. I'm going to get my heart happy in Jesus and I'm going to preach the Gospel to myself. The time to meditate and contemplate on the goodness of God and who He is as revealed to us in the Gospel. Again, it's there for us if we want it. The question is, do we actually want it? God is not the one holding out on a relationship. We are. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Let me pray for us. God, thank You for Your Word and thank You for the good news of the Gospel. That though we are sinners who have earned and rightly deserve Your judgment, that God, You have moved in Your love to satisfy Your judgment for our sin to bring us back to Yourself. Thank You, God, that this is who You are. 
that you are a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Thank you that you don't sweep our sin under the rug. You don't just close your eyes to it. You pay for it and you deal with it in the sacrifice of Jesus. So God, help us. God, we so often do get bored with the gospel, get bored with the reality of your grace in our lives. And so help us. Help us, even this morning, to walk out of here just freshly amazed at how good you are towards us and how you've been gracious and how your character and your attributes are turned towards us in grace. God, thank you for that reality. Thank you that this is who you are, are a good God. So God, I pray you just give us the grace to believe it. In your name, amen.